Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you've never heard our show before, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want you to be a part of our show. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So again, tell us about the educators who inspired you and the teachers in your community who deserve a spotlight. Email us with your nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And this week on the show, we have social studies teacher and founder of the Light Education Initiative, Nick Haberman. Light is an acronym. It stands for Leadership Through Innovation in Genocide and Human Rights Teaching. The initiative is part of the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh and works with schools all over the place. Basically, Light is meant to be a movement to empower students to become leaders in their own community in Holocaust, genocide, and human rights education. It's about remembering those tragedies and trying to advocate for real change in their schools and beyond. Of course, Nick and I talk all about how he got started in all this and what was the spark that became light. It's a great conversation and it is a long conversation, so I want to streamline things a bit for us this episode and jump right into it. This is my conversation with high school social studies teacher and the founder and director of the Light Education Initiative, Nick Haberman. Part of being a social studies teacher, or even, you know, you could take a step back, part of being a high school teacher, a secondary school teacher, is that you have to constantly have conversations with young people about careers, yeah, constantly. And what you start doing is you start to question yourself early on. You have enough, yeah. que- you have enough conversations with young people about, you know, you need to do what you love and do what you're passionate about, but also you need to find that balance between like what you love to do and what you're good at and your skills and your passions or whatever. And eventually our, we look inward, all of us teacher, teachers, and we ask ourselves like, man, is this what I really want to do? And I think a lot of us say, well, yeah, yeah, I do. Like this is, there's, I think a lot of teachers would say, you know, we have, we have a challenging job, but we have an extremely rewarding job. So I I had a lot of years to think about how, for me, education was this balance between performance, which is a, from Steve Martin's book. He talks about that, how edu- um, teachers- Are you like, talking about uh, board co- standing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah board yeah. standing up. Steve uh-huh. Martin talks about how all, all teachers are, after all, entertainers. I think his mom taught him that. So- <laughs> Um, I was I was a musician. I was a performer, and being in front of groups of people, I feel comfortable with. I enjoy. Um, I also, again, had a dad who was a social worker, so I was constantly hearing, overhearing conversations about, like, you know, helping people and the how we all need to do something to help other people. And my mom was a primary school teacher, so really like putting people, like setting people off on their right foot. So really, um, when we think about like the career of education, it blends a lot of things together. And I think after like your 20th year, um, which I'm, you know, kind of approaching, you really start to find that the teachers that have been able to hang on that long have, have had to think a lot about like why we're here, what we're doing, what our purpose is, and how we can make the biggest difference in the last few years we have, like in the classroom with kids. Right. Like, which is a good thing, right? So like self-evaluation and examination, like, I think that there's like two reactions, right? Like you can either get that far into a career and just become entrenched and say, this is the way that we do things. And this is how I'm going to continue to do things because it works or things are going okay, but how could they be better? And it's, and we're going to get into everything that 
with the work you're doing right now with, you know, the yeah. initiative. And it seems like that was probably the major pivot point for your career in education. I yeah. Imagine. I mean, that's the, I think everybody has, I've never heard anyone say this. So everyone listen closely. If you're a teacher, everyone has their teaching midlife crisis. Yeah. Everyone is putting their headphones in a little deeper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so I'm realizing during this conversation that I clearly had my teaching midlife crisis. And I know we like everybody does in their career where they get to that point where they decide I'm either going to do this for the rest of my life, or I am going to make a change or I'll never be happy. And luckily I was able to innovate and pivot within my profession so that I still get to hold on to, you know, what I went to college for. But at the same time, I was able to um, really feel like in the second half of my career, which I'm in, I'm hopefully able to leave it a little bit better than I found it for those first year teachers coming into the profession now. Yeah. And I feel like we really are tiptoeing around getting just diving fully into yeah. everything that you're doing with light. But I think it is interesting too. Like how how many years into your career in education were you before all of that started to take off or you started going off in that direction? Uh probably year year one. Oh, really? I so mean, it that, was like right away, that, it was like I've got yeah, my feet so under I, me. I'll I'll give you the story. I mean, this yeah, is please. the story of a lot of people who who do what I do and teach what I teach. Um, I got hired as an American history teacher and you know, teaching various levels, um, all different kinds of kids. And my first couple months, it was early, like American history, like late 1800s, you know, basically reconstruction, like through the industrial period. And it was, you know, a lot of it was like, how do I make this fun? How do I make this engaging? I had that young teacher, like endless energy. I didn't have, um, I didn't have any children myself. So like I would come home and work, you know, way too many hours coming up with lesson plans and, and materials and turning things into, you know, bingo games and paper airplane activities and just, you know, going outside and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then all of that think outside the box stuff. Yeah, we totally. could be like, Hey, you know, who was the real first rapper Shakespeare? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was like finding ways to like incorporate, um, like rage against the machine into my lessons and like, you know, really like crazy stuff. Like, how can I, how can I combine like my passion with, um, with the classroom? And then I got to, uh, the unit on World War II. And like any new teacher, I'm I'm very few days ahead of them, like maybe at best a couple weeks ahead of them in terms of like what exactly we're going to do. Because I have nothing to draw upon from previous years. I, I don't have like that bank, that treasure chest of like rock star lessons to just reach into. So I'm I'm just surviving. And in the unit on World War II, I was like, all right, I can probably do some of this pretty well because my grandfather fought in World War II. And then you look at the textbook and the curriculum, and I see that within the textbook section on World War II and within the curriculum is the Holocaust. And I very quickly realize there, there's going to be like, I, I know enough about it to know there's go, there are not going to be any games. There's not going to be any simulations. There's not going to be any, there's, there's not any like, you know, there's no, no time to be goofy for some right. of this content. There's no way there's, that we're going to lighten this forever. There's no way to appropriately do anything but grieve for this situation and these people. Like we, there needs to be a certain amount of care 
put into this content. And I was a young teacher, but I was still old enough to know this is not like other stuff that I have encountered yet in education, in the classroom. And I have a bunch of ninth graders. And there was also this incredible sense of responsibility and moral obligation of this might be the only time these kids learn about this. And I better not screw it up because the world screwed up by letting this happen. And if I screw up by teaching it wrong, I may do more harm than good. And luckily, being in a family of educators, I had an aunt who was still an active middle school teacher. And I know that she had taught the Holocaust in her English classes. And so my mom, again, these are this full circle, right? My mom who knows everything, who still knows everything and will never tell me she knows everything, but I know she knows everything. She said, why don't you call your aunt and ask her what she would do? And so I called my aunt and she's like, oh yeah, this is easy. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about it. We have people in this city in Pittsburgh who lived this historic experience. You can reach out to our local organization, the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, and ask them to help you out. And what they will do is they'll hook you up with a Holocaust survivor. And as long as you can successfully coordinate like a guest speaker coming in for the first time, that individual will share their story and it will be more powerful than anything you're going to do with the textbook. So thankfully, having gotten that advice, I had supportive administration and I had supportive colleagues and we we put it all together so that I I did what she said. I called up the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. They gave me the number of this guy named Jack Sitzamer, and he he was a Holocaust survivor. And on the phone with him, I said, um, "Would you mind coming in?" And he's like, "No, no, of course, of course, absolutely." And I said, "Well, I, you know, I have a lot of students. I have like 100, 120 students in over five different classes. How many are you comfortable speaking with?" He's like, "No, no, no, no." whole grade. You give me whole grade, the entire grade. This is, if I'm coming in, I want to speak to as large of an audience as you can give me. Perfect. So uh, booked the auditorium. And then he said, you're going to need to drive to my house. You're going to need to pick me up, bring me to your school, drive me home, whatever. So like I'm as a first year teacher, like getting all these permissions and stuff. Like how do I leave school in the middle of my day? How do I get a substitute to cover my classes? How do I like, you know, figuring all this stuff right, out. Coordinate that, make sure my car is clean for Totally, it. totally. Yeah. So, so this is an important part of the story later. Tons and tons of time went into coordination. Microphones for the auditorium, making sure the lights are on, permission slips originally for students to, to miss class. And then it was reorganizing the whole schedule of the day because all the teachers of the ninth grade wanted to take part in this. So now it's like you're messing with the whole school day. So now you're going to start to get into like times of schedules. And then, you, you know, there's all sorts of other just logistic things that you need to do to make something like that happen. So, you know, long story short, I pick the guy up, bring him to school. He does his, his speech. And within 40 minutes, he did a better job teaching the Holocaust and reaching students, engaging students than I was able to do later in my career with a whole semester long Holocaust elective you could hear a pin drop, these ninth graders, right? We're talking like 14, 15 year olds that never ever are quiet. They were completely attentive, incredibly respectful. Kids were crying, teachers were crying. At the end of the thing, he stops talking and this line silently forms 
of students in the aisle all the way out into the hallway because they want to shake his hand, hug him, get a selfie with him. They just want to like touch him in some way to thank him. Like, so you've got these kids hugging him and shaking his hand. You got teachers in line to hug this guy. And for the next few days after this assembly, the entire ecosystem of the school is, has changed because kids are asking, how can I make a difference? How can we help out? How can, you know, and it's, it's very clear that things are immediately different because the students have adopted this survivor story as their own. They connected with it in a way maybe they've never connected with anything before. They put themselves into the story and they start to ask questions about like, you know, what would have happened if they were there, if their family was there, what they could have done, would have done, should have done. So I go to drive him home. He gets in the car and he turns to me and, and I said, that's incredible. You got to come back. Like, the, the, I've never seen anything like this. This was amazing because I had never met a Holocaust survivor in my whole life. Yeah. I never heard stories like that. I'm not, I didn't grow up Jewish. That's not a story that I, that was my story. And so he had kind of given me his story. And then I say to him, you got to come back. And he says to me, a quote, I'll never forget. He says, I'm going to die soon. And when I do, it's up to you to tell my story. So at the time I didn't realize, he did realize that he was being completely serious. He had cancer. He oh my God. did not, I, he did not live long after he came to my school to do this presentation. And obviously, you know, the next year when this rolls around the same unit, the same, the same time, I'm realizing like, oh, like, I don't, he's, I, he's not a resource anymore that I can bring in. Like, I can't do this justice. I, I can never do what he did. I can't replicate that. So then, you know, years go by, I teach American history and I, I bring in other survivors. I bring in a guy named Judah Samet. I bring in a woman named Shulamit Pistaki. I bring in a guy named Herman Snyder. And, um, and Herman was the first one that it was the same kind of experience. He came in and then he passed away. Shulamit, she would come in, then she passed away. And I started to realize um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces here to, to what is happening to our society. There's a, the, the memory, it's like we're at risk of this story being forgotten. And I'm, I'm of this generation that remembers meeting the survivors, hearing their stories firsthand. And I'm realizing I'm not going to be able to keep doing that as an educator. And then you start to realize some teachers in certain parts of the country have never been able to put a survivor in front of their students. So this is when the wheels start turning about, you know, how to how to leave it better than I found it. So I realized a couple of things. Number one, there is is will never be a substitute. There is no and will never be a substitute for a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. That there's no, anyone who's sat in front of a survivor and heard their story. There's no substitute for that. Um, so that means that for us to deliver quality Holocaust education to our students, we have to be innovative, think outside the box. And what I saw that is that it started to be mandated in certain kind of ways, or there were talks about mandates. And I know enough about the education system to know that mandates are often met with resentment. You tell a teacher to do another thing and they're like, yeah, are you yes. freaking kidding me? Like Unfunded I don't have to do the things I'm yeah. doing. Unfunded yeah. mandates. Yeah. Exactly. And so I realized it's got to be incentive based and it has to really think outside the box. And then, you know, some so now I'm into like year 
five, year six of my teaching career. And at this point, I had inherited a Holocaust elective from another teacher who had made this rock star, awesome high school Holocaust elective. And, and it got passed on to me semester long, juniors and seniors, you know, I'm teaching like many, many sections of this elective every day. So I'm like deep into the Holocaust education and I'm looking around and seeing all of the money, time, effort is being put into STEM, being put into, you know, like STEM classrooms and maker spaces and STEM this and STEM that. And, you know, remember, like I'm married to a science teacher. Like I am right. extremely passionate about science education. Um, so it wasn't that I felt that we needed to take away from STEM, but I was realizing like, man, there needs to be a Tao. We need a balance. We need to bring some harmony to this because we're spending so much time teaching the kids how that we're forgetting to teach them why they're learning all of these skills. It's so that we can prevent horrific mistakes of humanity. It's so we can make people treat each other better. We can be more equitable, inclusive, create a better sense of belonging. Like that's why we're investing in STEM to make the country better, not just to make it faster and, and you know, and more technological, but it's for a purpose. So I realized like, oh my goodness, there's an army of innovative kids in front of me. Right. And like you said, where like, especially after you first had, you know, that, that first time that a survivor came to speak and you saw the impact that it had on the entire school after that. And that I think that I'm sure you found it. I think that I heard you see it in another interview or write down that like young people can be some of the best change makers, oh, but a lot best. of times yeah. the situation that they run into is that they have passion and they want to make that change, but they don't necessarily have the tools to know how to go about doing that. And to add one more piece to that, yeah. everybody needs a mentor. Yeah, it's, Every, it's, it's a lot to take on. Yeah, everybody needs somebody to help them. And young people need somebody to help them use their innovative skills and their technology for a purpose. And what our school system has unfortunately not, uh, it, we're not there yet to the student's level. Like our school system hasn't caught up to where they are. So the kids can make videos in like two seconds. They can <laughs> yeah. reach global audiences in an instant. They can come up with solutions to problems faster than I will ever be able to dream of. And what our school system has not done is given them the supports to be able to use their powers for good. And all we've done is punish them for using their powers for evil. So we say, put away your cell phones, put away this, put away that, don't do this, don't do that. And, and you know, originally as a young teacher, I would say the same thing, like, this is distracting. What are you doing? It's because I didn't grow up with it. Yeah. Right. And now I realize like, oh, wait, they're holding tools in their hand that can change the world. And, you know, this takes us a little bit farther down the road that I started to realize like, okay, so they have some of these STEM spaces. They have some of these like maker spaces yeah. and, they're, and they're like making stuff. And I, they start to bring it to my classroom. So now this is like year eight, year nine, whatever. And they're bringing like fidget spinners. They're bringing mm. like little poker chips. They're bringing all this stuff. And it is, it is perfectly created useless garbage <laughs> and and what expertly i am crafted expertly so. <laughs> masterfully crafted garbage and what i and this isn't the case for everybody in the world this is just what i was seeing right this is this is just my story of how i 
ended up where I am. Um, what I was doing in my classroom is I was getting all frustrated because I was, I had none of these tools. You know, I didn't have a 3D printer. I didn't have a cricket machine. I didn't have like any of this stuff. And, and I was having them make all of these like things out of paper and posters and whatever. And it, and, and then I would throw it all away. And so I started to think like, <laughs> wait a second, like I am, I am trying to get them passionate about stuff and I'm like trying to light this spark and I'm having them make all this stuff and everyone has a finite amount of energy and they're using their energy for me in my class to make stuff that I throw away. And then they're putting their energy in some of their other classes into making these things that serve no purpose. But like my stuff potentially in the humanities, like in the ELA classes and the social studies classes, like it could, it could serve a huge purpose. You know, we could, we could really make things better for a lot of people. And so, you know, I know that the STEM careers were thinking the same thing. Like, how do we make for a purpose? So I, I think a lot of people around the time of like the STEM makerspace arms race revolution and like, we yeah. need this, we need that. Like everyone, everybody started to think about like, all right, how can we, how can we use this for a purpose? Right. Great but, power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. So what yeah. I started to think about is, okay, I work in a Holocaust elective. How can I make my class, my students, my assignments focus more on project-based learning that is specifically dedicated to advocacy and remembrance? so that I could help to put them into leadership roles where they could be innovative in the fields of genocide and human rights in this you know, world of teaching. And that's the acronym, right? L-I-G-H-T. Leadership through innovation in genocide and human rights teaching. I came up with this acronym on my couch. The original one was lighthouse because I tried to incorporate like this, the metaphor of like a beacon. And I had the word like Holocaust in there and everything, but right. it's a very long acronym. At that yeah, point. For yeah, sure. yeah, for sure. So I tried to come up with this like really basic concept of what I, what I wanted, what I wished I had, right. That's how necessity is the mother of all invention. I needed something. I needed a, a thing for my kids to focus on and I needed there to be structure to it. And I needed it to help, I, you know, we had to acknowledge a couple of things. Like my school district doesn't struggle with a lot of the problems that other school districts struggle with, but we have our own specific struggles like any other school district. So for example, um, I was teaching a, a hundreds and hundreds of students a year about the Holocaust, and I may have had one or two Jewish students a year. Yeah. So my my challenge was how do I get non-Jewish students to really care about the history of the Holocaust and use that inspiration and use my classroom preparation to empower them to stand up against anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And then you come to the realization of the Holocaust is a lesson that teaches us that we as humans need to use our resources. And if we have privilege, use our privilege and use our, you know, our networks to stand up for all forms of identity-based violence and discrimination. So we take the Holocaust as a lesson in history and we study that lesson. And then we try to look to our community and figure out what needs to be fixed. Do we need to focus on anti-racism? Do we need to focus on advocacy for women or other minorities, indigenous people, LGBTQIA population? 
um, a any traditionally marginalized group of people? How can we use the lessons of the Holocaust, use the tools and resources in the classroom and the time that the kids have, give them a space in the, in the school that is a brave space for them, not just a safe space, but a space where they really feel like they can own it, almost like a, you know, a humanities clubhouse. And they can use all these innovative skills we've taught them to work with their representatives, their local libraries, their local cultural sites, nonprofit organizations, institutions, museums, and, and really you know, make a lot of magic happen to actually leave the school and the community safer and more compassionate than it was you know, before this stuff happened. Right, and, and use those tools now, not yes. like use those, so we're gonna learn all this, and then once you graduate, then you can volunteer with one of those organizations, right? It's here's an, here's an example of what you just said. I cannot tell you how many years I embarrassingly told students, when you graduate, you need to reach out to your representatives. You know, we're talking, I'm talking like eight, nine years that I taught when I, and I told the students, when you graduate, you got to write letters to your representatives and, you know, about the things that you care about. And you know, at some point, like I finally had a conversation with students and this light bulb goes off and I realized like, oh, wait a second. Like all I need to do is put envelopes and stamps in my classroom and like spend one class period where they actually write to their representatives and then they can, they know how to do it and they've done it. And then even easier than that is invite their representatives into school. To like have really open, honest conversations. And then, you know, through this, you connect the students' passions and what they're learning about and everything. And you bring all these things together. And we had this moment years ago where I had a group of students that were very interested in the history of our indigenous population in the United States. And they, you know, project-based learning, they, they start to open doors and they started to open doors about Indigenous Peoples Day. And they wondered why is Indigenous Peoples Day not on their school calendar? Why don't we recognize Indigenous Peoples Day? Why don't we recognize Genocide Awareness Month? Why don't? And the students got um, bipartisan representatives. So they they found a Democrat and a Republican as far ends of the political spectrum as they could find at the time, and they invited both of them to co-sign and co-sponsor legislation that would recognize Genocide Awareness Month all across the state of Pennsylvania, and that would um, that would locally acknowledge and recognize Indigenous Peoples Day as a recognized holiday and the, where they lived in Millville and in Pittsburgh. And so they got representatives to pass Indigenous Peoples Day legislation. And I think more importantly, is they reached out to members of our community who were Indigenous people and invited them to like help educate us so that we didn't make assumptions so that it was actually like, you know, really rooted at the, at the heart of all of like what we we're trying to do. Um, and so for Genocide Awareness Month, it, it went to the state and it was read on the House floor, this Genocide Awareness Month proclamation that was written by students, co-sponsored by Republicans and Democrats. And it showed that it's it's a human issue. It's not a, you know, a, a, a Republican issue, a Democratic issue, a, a this issue, a that issue. It's just human, human beings. Yeah. Um, and that was that was really born out of these physical spaces that yeah. you wanted to create for your students that were the, the light centers, correct? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. kind of the idea. Um, yeah. And, and another 
you know, piece of this to add is, is I realized it has to be um, contemporary. So right. the, our, our method is inspire, prepare, empower. So that's our approach. That's how we do things. And you can't always inspire people with Holocaust education. Sometimes it has to be contemporary, like whatever is in front of them it has to be open source. So if you go into a school where students are dealing with something very specific, like let's let's talk about a school um, that that I've worked with that is very much dealing with um, with racism, and that's their issue. And so if we start the conversation, if we try to inspire them by talking about anti-Semitism, they, young people wonder, why aren't you talking about my problems? I don't have a problem with racism, but I have a huge problem. I'm sorry, I don't have a problem with anti-Semitism, but I have a huge problem with the racism that I am experiencing. Systematic racism in my school, my community, my, my everywhere. So what we found is we really need to, in these spaces, in these environments, start it has to be co-designed essentially you have to design the program with the end users of the program and so sometimes we start with holocaust education and anti-semitism sometimes we start with anti-racism sometimes we start with um with lgbtqia issues sometimes we start with suicide prevention and awareness and mental health and you know yeah. whatever it is let the students tell us where to start and we're teachers we can then guide them down this road where they see that we all need to be allies for one another and practice allyship and show up for each other, whether we're black or Jewish or gay or, you know, whatever, everybody has something that they're dealing with in this country. So how can we work together to lift everybody up together? So this, the light centers, the idea behind like this space is it, it can be kind of anywhere within a school. It can be in a, in an existing maker space, like a, a makerspace could become a light center or it could be part of in the library or in a classroom. The idea, the goal is just that wherever it ends up being is that it's accessible. That students know that that is a place where they can go, where there is an adult who will help them work on things that they are passionate about and care about. And hopefully we can plant enough seeds that kids throughout the school that maybe we don't know throughout these schools, the teachers don't all know, will find this. They'll be attracted to this program, to this space, and they'll see this as, uh, as a space where they can actually work to make their community and their school better for all different groups of people. Right. And it might look different depending on the school, right? Like it could be after school clubs, it could be a class, it could be all sorts of things, right? It, it has to. It yeah. has to be open source because every school has their own particular challenge. We work with foundations so that everything for students is free. Everything comes with food. Everything comes with transportation. Everything comes with, you know, as much as we can give. So where light fits in now and kind of what we do is we have a mission to inspire, prepare, and empower the next generation of humanitarians. And we do that by helping nurture and build these relationships between schools and their libraries and local nonprofit organizations, museums, individuals, institutions, universities, um, you know, anything that helps to inspire, prepare and empower the next generation of humanitarians, anything that really like promotes 
compassionate, profound, transformative, inspiring, you know, amazing opportunities. That's what we try to plug into. And we help our teachers plug in because we see that our intervention is primarily with educators. We know teachers want to offer the best to their students. We know as teachers that teachers don't necessarily have the time to be as go back to that assembly. They don't have the time necessarily to coordinate all the stuff, make all the phone calls, you know, find the funding for it, do all the stuff. So we realize that if we help a teacher in a school district to connect to all this stuff, and if we give them the money that they need, connect them to it, if we help carve out the time in their school day by working with the school district, and if we help give them a space within the school, then what will result is that students will flock the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come model. Yeah. Students will come to the space wanting to do the stuff and the teachers will have the ability, the time, the connections to have students step into these leadership roles. So what we're essentially doing is we're helping create safe schools and promote equity, inclusion, and belonging by helping at least one teacher in the schools that we work in. So that's what we require. When we go into a new school, we require the school district superintendent or, you know, if it's a private school, like the basically the boss of the school, the building principal, whatever it is, we require them to sign off that they're committed to it and approve of it. We require the, you know, whoever the direct um, administrator is over that teacher to sign off. We require like a teacher who wants to do it like it has to be a teacher who wants to do it. We, yes. This is not another thing. So a teacher who like has the passion, you know, they are part of it. And then we make a commitment to just help them in any way that we can. Yeah. And we know that if we do, then the the ones who will benefit from this intervention and this help are the students. And hopefully we can inspire, prepare and empower the students to stand up to all forms of hate speech and intolerance and discrimination and any form of identity-based, you know, violence. Yeah. How many schools is light in now? We have expanded to 13 school districts, but 15 schools. Yeah. And we now have a waiting list that keeps growing at a scary rate. Um, <laughs> Exciting, we, but scary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've expanded from a budget of $0 in one classroom with just me to now we have three different team members in addition to me. So we have a team of four people working on this. We have a, a school project, I'm sorry, a school partnership coordinator who's just trying to figure out how to get schools to collaboratively work together, not competitively work together, right? Like, Yeah, collaboration always... seems to be at the heart of all of this. Oh so. my God, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah if, if we're supposed to prepare kids for life, like not everything is a competition. Like last year, a kid said to us, um, or a teacher, he said, in, in my 30 years of teaching, I've done countless programs with other schools and every single one of them has been a competition. Mm -hmm. It's been academic competitions. 100%. It's been sports, whatever. He yeah. said, this is the first thing I've ever done where you're not asking the kids to compete against each other. You're asking <laughs> them to just work together. We work hand in hand on everything with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. So I'm basically, you, you know, I built into that team now as a team member of the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. So we have, you know, um, four people on the light team. One of them is my former teacher 
who was a mentor of mine, who's a retired teacher. He's our school partnership coordinator. And then the other two people are two of my former students. So intergenerational. Look at you. Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, what we're kind of showing is that, you know, my former teacher, Doug Corey is his name. He brought in the drummers from Rusted Root whenever I was in the band Rusted Root, whenever I was in high school. And he did a, um, he had us participate in like a, a drum circle to promote like world music and cultural awareness through like social studies classes. Like let's learn about social studies and culture through music. And it, it changed my life. I was like, oh my God, this is like the most beautiful, amazing thing I've ever been a part of. And the reality is, is that we forget a lot of our individual days of school, but we remember those things that are either really terrible or really fantastic. And that's one of those profound transformative moments in my educational career. And, and Doug, you know, my former teacher is the one who planned that. So when I became a teacher, not surprisingly in my first year, like that's what I did is I realized I don't want to screw this up. I need to plan an experience that the kids won't forget. And that's why I brought in a survivor. And then as I was teaching over the years, I would tell the students, you know, I'm just trying to give you things that you'll remember that will help make you want to leave the world a better place. And I met enough Holocaust survivors that they would pass on all these quotes like, you have an obligation to lead a life that is useful to the community. Otherwise, what's the point of being around? The program yeah. is much bigger than me now, which is, you know, really exciting and scary and cool. Yeah, all um, things. Yeah, is, is, uh, you know, Roman, who, who is our community partnership coordinator and my former student. And, you know, thankfully he's way smarter than me. He's a better writer than I am. He's great. Like I, I set him on a good path when he was in ninth grade and now he's 10 years out of school and he's crushing it. But his whole internal guiding principle is co-design. And I wasn't familiar with this term. He brought this term to light mm. and to me and this it's, I said it before and I'll kind of explain it a little more is basically if we want students to want to utilize the different um, programs and opportunities in a community or in a school, they have to help develop them. Yeah. We, what we do far too often, and this is actually a principle of, um, unfortunately of like white supremacist thinking is just making assumptions and assuming that like the thing you're doing is right. It's very paternalistic and it's what we want to try to like undo. Um, is, you know, the old way of thinking is, okay, I'm educated. I went to college. I'm a teacher. I, I'm smarter than you. I can, you know, you're only 14. I'm going to tell you the program that you want and I'm going to make it for you. And then people get frustrated. Like, why aren't these 14 year olds coming to my event? Well, did they design it? Did they have any say in it? Did they have any ownership of it? Why don't they have any investment in the lesson plan that you've designed? Well, have you asked them for feedback? Feedback hurts sometimes. It's hard to hear that what you're doing needs to be better, but like kind of going into every situation in education, thinking about the audience and the end user. And now for us, it's thinking about teachers. If we're designing a program that we want teachers to benefit from every step of the way, it has to be constant feedback. Like at the end of every phone call and meeting and visit, is there anything else we could be doing for you? Do you have any other ideas? Can this be better? You, you know, are we screwing anything up? Like there, there has to be constant questions about, you know, what do you need and are we delivering it? Because if we're not, then we need to engage in creative destruction and we need to tear this thing down like while we're in the middle of it and just keep rebuilding it. 
And that's scary for a lot of people to hear that like what we're doing today isn't necessarily what we're doing tomorrow, but the world today isn't necessarily what the world is tomorrow. When I saw that, that you got nominated to be on the show, the thing I thought was so fascinating and one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you was, you know, it felt like you know, having an educator on that is, you know, an expert on things like human rights and hate speech, genocide was, you know, in 2022 feels, you know, because the light, I think, formally started in like 2017, right? Or so. Well, technically, I mean, the 2006. 2006, was, yeah. Well, well, so yeah, 2006 is whenever um, I, I had this, you know, Holocaust survivor moment of like this first kind of like program. And then like- right. And then like in um, like the early 2000, like 10, 11, 12 is whenever things really started to take shape. And then yeah. whenever things started to get like more formal, um, you know, now we're into like creating a website and doing all that. Stuff. Right. Now, now we're into like, you know, six or maybe like six, six years ago or so. And then, uh, yeah. And then where we are now and, and where we're going is, it's pretty crazy. Right. But like having, having conversations, having honest conversations in schools and any platform about human rights, hate speech, genocide, just felt like something that, you know, in 2022, that feels more essential than it did, you know, in a couple of years ago, these things feel more pertinent. And, you know, I think that part of that probably has to do with, you know, um, you know, you see the situation now in Russia, right. You see it yeah. attempted genocide there. You see, you know, extremism. And I know that again, even in your community, in Pittsburgh with the, the, the tree of life tragedy a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. I mean, you see bills and laws in certain States these days targeting, you know, trans non-binary people and books and experiences about those experiences about racism, all of this feels even more pertinent in 2022 than even it did a couple of years ago. Not saying that those things weren't important a couple of years ago, but it feels like these things are, at the surface of societal conversations more now yep. than they were yeah. a few years ago. What has that experience been like? Is that something that you've kind of felt palpably in the organization recently? Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So, yeah. so um, when I was teaching the Holocaust, like as, as an elective, which I've done more times than I can remember, cause it was a semester elective with many sections per semester. Yeah. I, I started to, um, to, to learn more about the story of Deborah Lipstadt who has she's amazing look her up i mean her resume is a mile long but basically she was asked to research holocaust denial and she said the first time she was asked to research it she laughed because she thought who in the world could deny the holocaust and the second time she was asked to research it a couple of years later she laughed again but then she decided to research it and so she researched it and she wrote a book and then she got sued and she got sued um in england which means that she was guilty till proven innocent. So she essentially had to spend years of her life defending her own argument that, or what became an argument that she had to defend that the Holocaust happened and it wasn't a hoax. And then it wasn't funny anymore that we got to the point in society where, where this um, unbelievably acclaimed renowned scholar had to go into a courtroom and had to provide evidence proving that the Holocaust happened and that the Holocaust denier who was suing her was wrong. And there's a movie about it um, called Denial. And there's like all sorts of resources you can look into it. And now, you know, she's elevated in her career to all these amazing positions. But 
the the point is is that when I first started teaching the Holocaust, um, to even think of a student like if they any denial was purely like ignorance at that point. There was never mm -hmm. any like nefarious, mischievous intent. Like kids just pure and simple like did not know. But they still had a close connection, it seems like, through their grandparents or great grandparents who, you know, a lot of their grandparents were still alive to, to World War II. So like to think yeah. that they could deny something in World War II, like their their family would scream at them. But now we're so far removed from it. Right. And talk about how there's so many, there's just fewer and fewer survivors that are left. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as, you know, not surprisingly, as the survivor community sadly dwindles, um, there are fewer opportunities for students to have those profound transformative moments like, you know, my first students had with a survivor. And like I've been able to do just, you know, a few times. And so what, you know, what we've seen is that there has been a, a rise in um, in Holocaust ignorance, and there has been a rise and increase in Holocaust denial. And in saying that, we should call it what it is. That means there has been an increase in anti-Semitism. A few years ago, coming up anniversary is October 27th, we saw um, this manifest in the most violent act of anti-Semitism in American history at the Tree of Life synagogue, which was one of the oldest synagogues in Pittsburgh. And what happened at the Tree of Life is, um, is I personally felt and our city personally felt that we failed, that we failed our community, that we failed our students, it, that we let things get to the level of murder of, of you know our fellow Pittsburghers. And Tree of Life is, it's in the neighborhood where, you know, my survivor friends were from and lived. It's the synagogue of one of the survivors that I used to bring into my classroom who's still around. It's um, a 10 minute drive away from my school district, you know, where light started. So to think on one hand that like, I feel that light is part of the future of Holocaust genocide, human rights education. It's also being born in the city that had the worst act of anti-Semitism in American history, the most violent, deadly act of anti-Semitism. So what we're now trying to do at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh and, and what the Pittsburgh community is doing in rebuilding the tree of life into something new, and there's all sorts of articles about it, you can look it up, yeah. um, is, to, is to try to capture that spirit of resilience that the city had in the moments after the shooting where you had this incredible interfaith response. You had the Muslim community step up in a way that was truly beautiful. You had other, you know, the Christian community step up in a way you had the Jewish community come together. You had all, you know, Pittsburgh community come together, sports teams, just, you know, people who never talked to each other were consoling each other. You had this really incredibly powerful moment of resilience and everyone coming together and saying enough is enough. We cannot let this continue to be this way. We have to make things better for everyone or we're all worse off. And born of that were a, a lot of different um, programs and, and you know new opportunities and light is sort of kind of still riding that wave of people realizing uh, they need to do more. So my challenge is now helping school districts, organizations, institutions, and foundations capture that lightning in a bottle and embed it because yeah. it's already years past and it's the memory as the memory fades so too will the momentum to change 
And so now, you know, this year I'm trying to work with as many and find as many different school board representatives and superintendents that are really committed to embedding this type of um, educational innovation within their school system. So light is essentially, and this is, you know, where I'll kind of give my final thought and you can ask any questions you want, but light is essentially trying to bring positive systematic change to school systems, to nonprofit organizations and the way that they function and to relationships with institutions, museums, foundations. So light has found, we found ourselves in the middle of a lot of groups of people that really want to make a change, but just need a little bit of intervention and help. And that's why I think light is growing faster than I can keep up with is because you know, a lot of people want to make those changes. So we're trying to create a model that can be replicated outside of Pittsburgh through institutions like the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh that um, understand the content, understand the the necessity and understand the 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 urgency. Hey, thanks so much for, for taking some time to chat about this. If I leave you at the one, I want to leave you with an anecdote. And it was because at the beginning you were talking about you're a musician, correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. And you mentioned how you know, early on in your teaching career that you tried to work in a little bit of Rage Against the Machine. Yep, for sure. I, I recently had a Rage Against the Machine experience that I wanted to tell you about because <laughs> it it's not 100% in sync with what we're talking about, but it's a little on the periphery of our conversation, which was in May of this year, I got to go down to this very, very small town of Marseilles, Illinois, right along the Illinois River, which... and. It was the site of, it was like the, uh, gosh, I can't remember, the Illinois Historical Society, I want to say, was unveiling a plaque for Workers Memorial Day. And it was about the 100th anniversary of this uh, incident where a bunch of local union workers were killed. And it was the site of violence that they were essentially like you know during the, the great depression you know they were having this this big dam built on the illinois river the organization would refuse or the company refused to hire a bunch of local union workers you know brought in a bunch of out-of-state workers and then it ended up building in this class where a bunch of local workers got killed right so they're unveiling this plaque having to do with the 100th anniversary of this and the person that they bring to commemorate this event is someone who grew up in Marseilles, who is uh, Tom Morello. Oh my God. <laughs> and so Tom Morello shows up to this co- to commemorate this event and then goes ahead and on stage and plays like a solid like 20 minutes, 25 minutes set of strictly these like pro union anthems, you know, solidarity forever and all that stuff. And so it was like <sighs> me and like 20 people, like, like, like within five feet, of Tom Morello as he did these uh, this acoustic set as uh oh gosh I can't re- uh the night watchman I believe oh is, is man I don't even know what to say right I just saw <laughs> Rage Against the Machine live uh in Pittsburgh and um I in my first year of teaching I definitely used like um Tom Morello and Rage Against the Machine's cover of Ghost of Tom Joad uh-huh. Yeah. I talk about, you know, the plight of workers in America. And yeah, that, led that. To, uh-huh. that led me to using all sorts of uh, songs from an album that was written or it was performed by Ani DeFranco and Utah Phillips, yeah. which is all about like workers' rights songs that I know that um, Tom Morello covers like some of those worker songs. And I yeah. think, you know, there's it's important to to point out that 
Light was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And one of our subsidized field trips that we offer is to the Rivers of Steel carry blast furnaces. And that, you know, Rivers of Steel is the site of the Homestead Steel Strike. Yeah. And and everybody in Pittsburgh, if you've been here a couple of generations, is related to union members who have, you know, fought the fight and and I mean, this is all all gets back to human rights. Whenever people feel safe, then they can be productive. When workers feel safe, when they have adequate hour, wages, hours, and working conditions, then they can do amazing things. When students feel safe, they can do amazing things. So, like, I, this is such an important point that you bring up about, you know, how this it's all tied together. Basically, yeah. people just want to know that somebody's got their back and somebody's looking out for them and somebody's taking care of them. And when they feel safe, then they make their community better. It's like super common sense. I feel like to bring this all full circle to close, there needs to be some sort of like light field trip where it's, you know, Tom Morello in concert. You can call it creative destruction. <laughs> if you ever get me connected to Tom Morello, it'd be a dangerous thing because I would have to immediately retire because <laughs> it would not get like any better than having a conversation with Tom Morello about like workers' rights and making a difference. And although then I'd be motivated to like do it till I died and I'd like you know, <laughs> yeah. die standing on my feet. Um, you know, re real quick, like to bring this all back, the, the really full circle is the reason all of this exists is whenever I finally figured out that I should be doing project-based learning and I, you know, let kids help to decide like how they should be evaluated on whether or not they understood the Holocaust. I had a student who um, she said, can I make a painting about what like, instead of doing a final, can I like paint you something that really illustrates what I've learned? And she painted this factory and this assembly line, and it had these people on it and these children on it, like going through this assembly line. And, and, and it started with like these really bright colors and ended the assembly line with these really faded colors. And it's, there were people wearing these bright, you know, uniforms at the beginning, like victims and perpetrators. And at the end, the perpetrators uniforms had faded because Nazism had fallen, but at the end, the people had fallen off the end of the conveyor belt because they had also, you know, been victims to this. And like, it was, it, the thing made mm. me cry. This, and that made me realize I need to create a space in the school where this has a permanent home, where things like this have a permanent home. And that was the first thing that went into the, the light center, the first light center, the first piece of artwork that was hung up. It's amazing. It's not amazing until you hear that. When I came up with the idea for light, I reached out to this person because I needed help with like a logo and a website and that student volunteered to do the work for free. And that eventually turned into her job. And she is the person who's the creative director for light now. So that has turned into her career. And she is also the person who nominated me to be on this call with <laughs> you. <laughs> I don't know if we could get more, more full circuit than I think I've got to exit out of the zoom call now. <laughs> we can't top it's, that. <laughs> you know, here's the thing you end on. Teacher, I, this, I heard this quote from another teacher. Teachers don't have the time to sit next to the seeds that they've planted and watch the trees grow. So sometimes as teachers, we don't get to see what the trees look like from the seeds that we planted, but sometimes we do. And that's what makes it all worthwhile and keeps us, keeps us coming back and keeps us waking up in the morning. Well, I think, I think we got to end on that. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks to Nicole for the nomination. Yes, thanks to her as well. All right, have a great one. You too. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Nick. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. If you like what we do, it's the best way to make sure we get even more cool perspectives on the show. Please subscribe to our Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do all of that on this episode's webpage over at WNIJ.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear every single episode. I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.